So it's week four. Can you believe it? Of our live streaming, a whole month has gone by since we have last seen you. And MCAC, we really miss you guys. We miss worshiping together. We miss、um, catching up. We miss discussion times. We miss our lunches and just you know being able to see each other face to face. But we also know that、uh, through the social distancing, we're helping、um, to make、uh, things better for everyone. We're keeping everyone safer, and so、um, even though we have to celebrate our our, our Easter weekend through live stream once again,、um, we hope that you are still able to find meaningful connection with God and each other. And we want to invite you after our sermon、um, to please join us、um, on Zoom. Today we have a bit of a treat、um, in that Michelle and Andy are going to be leading us through a few songs as well,、um, in addition to our sharing and prayer time. So please join us. And if you've never actually come、um, to our physical church, or、um, maybe you've come once or twice and you feel a bit shy. Um, we won't bite. It's Zoom, so you know you can always join by audio if you don't want to be on video.、Um, but it'd be lovely to meet you and to be able to connect that way. So、um, I hope you can all join us after. Now, last week Roy preached、um, about three different ways that Christians res- can respond to suffering and pain, and one of the ones that he highlighted was the idea of biblical lament. How the Bible is full of expressions of disappointment and grief that real followers of God experienced, and how through that grief process, through that heartfelt, vulnerable pouring out of themselves to God, they actually found. Uh, God's comfort and presence、um, in in a more clearer, in a real, tangible way. And so, I want to ex- examine one such example today, a bit closer. And the story is found in the book of Job, which is one of the first books of the Old Testament to be written,、uh, most likely by Moses.、Um, in which case, it was around 1500 BC. So, it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. And it's a fascinating story,、um, and I want to I want to look at the first chapter、um, and and kind of set the stage for you. And so this is what it says in Job chapter one, verses one to three. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels. Five hundred teams of oxen and five hundred female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Scholars believe that the land of Uz was southeast of the Jordan River, in the upper regions of the Sinai Peninsula around here. So this is vaguely kind of where the star is, is、uh, where scholars believe that the land of Uz might have been. And it says that he was the richest person in that entire area. So even by today's standards. That's a lot of animals. He was a wealthy man, and then Job does something so unique、um, in that we all of a sudden get to see a little glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes in the cosmic universe,、um, and we get to go to the the heavenly courts. And this is what Job continues to say. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, "I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on." Then the Lord asked Satan, "Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil." Satan replied to the Lord, 
Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. And in the original Hebrew, it, it literally says, does Job, does Job fear God for nothing? And that word nothing, uh, hina is the, is the Hebrew word, is going to be a key word throughout this book. Saying says, you've always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and surely he will curse you to your face. So here Satan is accusing not only Job of, of following God and serving God only for the rewards and the benefits, but really Satan is, is really making a jab at God because he's basically saying, God, people only follow you because of the rewards. You, you're not, you're not likable enough, lovable enough so that people want you just for you. If you took away the rewards and the benefits, right? Who's actually going to follow you? So Satan is really getting at God here, but through Job. And, and God knows what Satan is doing. And he wants to be able to prove to the heavenly court because everyone is listening. Everyone is watching in this heavenly court. It's not just God and Satan here. And now they're all wondering, okay, who's right? Is, is God right? Is God right that Job will, will still serve uh, God regardless? Or is Satan right that as soon as God takes away all the blessings and rewards, that Job will leave him. And ultimately that God isn't worthy to be worshipped and loved for who he is. And so God believes in Job, right? But no one else can, can see the proof of it. So Job becomes this landmark case to set the precedent um, for all future accusations against God and against his followers. And so then this is what happens next. God says, all right, you can, uh, you can test him and, um, do whatever you want and, but don't hurt Job physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence and the curtains close and we're back to the land of Uz, where blissfully ignorant Job is having, um, the worst day of his life. So here we come to verse 13, Job chapter one, verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came from naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin by blaming God. You know, some people think that Job's response to this series of very, very unfortunate events, this amazing acceptance and declaration of praise. Some people think that this is the only right response to all suffering, tragedy, and pain. And if the book of Job ended here, 
Maybe I would agree with them, but then I would have this impossible standard that I can never live up to. But the book does not end here. Even though Job does respond by saying, oh, you know, at first this overwhelming news of this incredible loss, he loses everything, not just all his wealth, but all his, all the servants that he had relationships with, but especially his children, right? devastating all his children. So he has this incredibly tragic news and, and you can imagine he's just one after one after another and he's overwhelmed and he's just like speechless. And then he finally just says, you know what? God has given me everything. He's taken everything away, but it doesn't end there. The book of Job continues and, and we, we go back to the courtroom scene in heaven and Lord said, and the Lord says to Satan, see, Job remained faithful to me. You know, he didn't say, you know what? Forget God. He, 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 he continues to cry out to me. And then Satan kind of jeers at God and says, well, of course. He says, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health. Touch Job himself and he will curse you to your face. So then the Lord says um, to him, all right, do with him as, 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 as you please, but spare his life. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with his terrible boils from head to foot. And it says that Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. And his wife said to him, are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job replied, you talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all this, Job said, nothing wrong. And then... Finally, Job processes. The Bible says that at this point, Job is sitting in the ashes, sitting in the ashes. And, you know, whenever the Bible talks about ashes, it talks about it um, in this, in, whenever there's something so extremely sad. Um, the biblical, you know, in the biblical times, what they would do is they would wear sackcloth and they would sit in ashes and they would mourn. So here's Job sitting in the ashes, mourning all the loss, right? All the loss that he has just experienced. And it says that, you know, um, some of his friends come to comfort him and they come to comfort him and they really, they see how horrible it is. They see the condition that he's in and they see how extremely heartbroken he is. And so for seven days, they just sit with him and they say nothing. And then finally, after the seven days, Job breaks the silence and listen to what he starts to say. I've just taken a few um, verses from the text. At last, Job spoke and he cursed the day of his birth. He said that the day of my birth be erased and the night that I was conceived, let that night be blotted off the calendar, never again to be counted among the days of the year, never again to appear amongst, amongst the months. Had I died at birth, I would not be at peace. I would be asleep and at rest. And he goes on and on to talk about how miserable he is, how he wishes he could die, how he wishes he was never born. And, and he gets quite graphic in how, and you could tell just how heartbroken and how, um, just uh, frustrated and angry he is. In fact, for the next 40 chapters, there's, there's this monologue and dialogue between him and the friends. And, and he's no longer this, this, this man who just said, oh, well, he's not. He, you know, in the beginning when he said, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, praise the Lord. He wasn't just happy about it. He wasn't faking it. He was genuine. But now he's processing all the emotions. Like Roy shared about in his sermon last week, 
Biblical lament is is not just putting on a, a brave face. Biblical lament is saying, "I trust in God, but it really stinks, and what I'm going through is really difficult." And and God, why are you doing this to me? And this is how I feel. And it's about being vulnerable and pouring out your heart and expressing your feelings, working through it, processing it. And so Job does that, and his friends don't exactly help because his friends start saying, "Hmm." Job, there must be a reason why you're going through this. And they're trying so hard to find the reason. Maybe, Job, you did something wrong. Or maybe, you know, and they're coming up with all this rationale and Job gets really frustrated with them. And he says, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And, and he uses that word. Remember I said the word hina, the word nothing is going to be a key point. Well, he, Job says repeatedly, I did nothing. And he says, I am suffering for nothing. Remember that, how, how Satan said, will Job serve God for nothing, right? Would he serve God even if he gets nothing? And here's Job saying, God, I'm suffering for nothing, right? There's no purpose to this. He says, I didn't deserve this. And he goes on to talk about how he hasn't cheated. He hasn't lied. He hasn't lusted. He hasn't mistreated anyone. He says, from childhood, I've cared for orphans and the widows and the homeless, he says, I never wished harm on any of my enemies. I was never jealous, never turned away a stranger. He says in Job chapter uh, 31, verses 33 to 36, have I tried to hide my sins like other people do, concealing my guilt in my heart? If only someone would listen to me. Look, I will sign my name to my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser write out the charges against me. I would face the accusation proudly. I would wear it like a crown. In other words, Job is saying, I I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. Meanwhile, the wicked around me, who have abused people, who have rejected God, who have who has mocked God, they're prosperous and healthy. Why am I facing all the trouble, God? Why am I suffering for nothing? And Job demands a court hearing of his own. He says, let the Almighty answer me. He says, open up the courts, right? I want justice. I want answers. You know, it's really interesting because the writer um, who we believe is Moses, you know, and, and Moses was a very educated man. The, the book of Job is one of the most beautiful uh, literary books in the Bible because the book is, is structured in this beautiful Hebrew poetry. Um, and scholars believe that this is one of the most lyrical poetry found in the entire Bible. Um, but not only is the book written in this beautiful poetry of monologue and dialogues between Job and his friends and also God, but there's this literary structure um, that, that has multiple folds within a fold. And um, here's what, how one, um, Gordon E. Christo what is his name, this is how he kind of illustrates it. And it's almost like those Russian matryoshka dolls that you open, you know, you open one, then another one, and there's another one, and you finally you get to the littlest one inside. And it's kind of like that, this multi-layered structure where there's a big picture, and you open it up, and there's another structure, and you open it up, and there's another structure. So then what's at the heart? What's the kernel of the book of Job? What's the theological structural center of this book? And that's, if you see at the bottom, Job chapter 19. We get to the heart. When we open up all the structure, we get to the heart, the kernel of the book of Job. And it says in 19 verses 25, 27, this is Job speaking. In the midst of his mourning, he says, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, 
Yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. You see, in the midst of his incredible loss and pain, through his lament, and because he takes the time to process this to God, Job is able to experience that clarity of vision, that God is very real, that he's very powerful, and that he will bring about justice. This is the moment in the relationship between God and the individual when, when everything becomes personal and transformative. And that's the power of biblical lament because he's able to express his grief and be vulnerable to God and to be honest with God, right? Through that process, an intimacy is formed where God becomes personal. Job says, I, and in the Hebrew, it says, I, I. So it's like, it's that repetition that's saying, I, myself, for myself. No, an intimate no. It's that no that says, I have a relationship. I know that my, my Redeemer lives. The word Redeemer in the Hebrew is Gael. And it's this rich word that has multi-layered meaning in the Old Testament. It means the avenger of blood, the person who brings about justice for the unjustly killed person. It also means kinsman redeemer, the person who pays the price to buy back the land or redeem the family line of the dead person. It means the advocate, the legal defender in court. It also means ransom payer, the person who pays the ransom for the kidnapped and, and is able to, to redeem. And it also means the deliverer, the person who rescues from the enemy. And Job wants all of these things, right? He wants all of the above. He wants justice. He wants restoration. He wants redemption. He wants deliverance. So who is Job's Gael? Who is his redeemer? Who is this redeemer that Job is so convinced is alive? He says, I know my redeemer lives. And there's a clue in the vision. He says, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. Now, the original word there, the Hebrew word says, he will stand on the dust at last. And this is the same Hebrew word for dust, for when God forms man of the dust of the ground. And also for the same Hebrew word, when God uh, is, is uh, cursing the serpent who has made Adam and Eve sin, and he says to the serpent, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, so one future person coming from humanity, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time in, in the Gospels, uh, sorry, in the Bible, where there is a hint that there's a Savior coming, a Savior coming from humanity, born of humanity, who's going to crush the serpent. That word Hebrew for dust is, is the same word that God uses when he sadly tells Adam and Eve, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So when we go back to Job and we look at who is Job's Gael, who is this re living redeemer who stands on dust, who stands victorious over death, who stands victorious over the serpent and crushes his head? And who is that redeemer who breaks that cycle of dust to dust and ashes to ashes? And we find the answer more than 1,500 years later when another blameless individual a man of complete integrity stands up 
in the temple courts. And he reads this passage in Isaiah chapter 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And he did this, just that. This man, Jesus, he preached the good news to the poor, healed the brokenhearted, gave freedom to those who were enslaved to the false ideas, addictions, and demons, and promised a day of justice and resurrected the dead, giving them beauty for ashes. His name was Jesus, and, and, and like Job, he was falsely accused and unjustly treated. And no, no fault of his own, he was arrested and whipped and beaten and spat on, mocked, crucified, and killed that Friday over 2,000 years ago. And like Job, he remained faithful and blameless in his suffering. But then that's where the comparison ends. For Job, remember, he was crying out saying, God, why am I suffering for nothing? Right? He said, this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. Let the wicked suffer for their sins. Let the righteous be rewarded. And Job is saying, that's how it should be. But Jesus is different. Jesus comes along and says, let me suffer for the wicked so that they can be rewarded for my righteousness. Let me die for the wicked so that they can live. Let me be their Gael. Let me be their redeemer. I will pay the ransom price. I will take the death penalty in their place. I will pay for the condemned so that they pay nothing. And so Jesus died for humanity on that Friday so many years ago. But death could not hold the author of life captive. And so then we get this beautiful passage in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 6. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like the lightning, and his clothes was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Jesus stood on the dust. He conquered the serpent. He conquered death once and for all, and he resurrected. And because our Gael, because our Redeemer lives, we can endure whatever undeserved suffering that we're going through now. And like Job, if we take the time and the opportunity to be vulnerable with God, to be honest to God, to pour out our hearts to Him, we can also find that conviction. I, I myself know that my Redeemer lives. Do you remember just a few months ago when the bushfires devastated Australia? So many acres burnt, so many plants and trees destroyed, so much wildlife killed. But from the ashes, life is blooming. This week I read an article about Kangaroo Island and how the fires burnt almost half the island, but the endangered short-beaked echidna is surviving 
out there on the ashes. They have these cameras on the island, and and they found this endangered animal that is living off the ashes. You see, there's hope. Jesus breaks the cycle of dust to dust and ashes to ashes, and he brings beauty from the ashes. He brings life from the death. And because he lives, we can face today with all his challenges. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow with all its uncertainties. And because he lives, we can serve him for nothing, and praise him for everything, because everything we receive is a gift. And because he lives, we can experience the the lament, the grief, the pain of what we're going through, but also the joy and the peace and the praise of how he's with us through it, and how he will get us through it, and how in the end he will bring about beauty from ashes. Please join with me in prayer. Jeremy, Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that he died for us and that he paid for everything so that we pay nothing. And Father God, we pray that as we experience suffering in our lives, as we experience loss, as we experience um, things that just don't make sense to us, help us to remember that rather than looking for answers, we should just look for you for our living Redeemer, and to remember that because you are alive, because you resurrected, your death and resurrection give us hope for the future, give us meaning for the future, and that as we go through this difficult time with, with the virus and, and also health and, and everything else that everyone is going through, Father, help us in this moment find clarity and comfort in your presence. And, and through this experience, Father, may we understand grace that... You suffered in a way that we would never understand. But Father God, through that suffering, we can experience incredible, amazing grace. And so we thank you for Jesus and what he did and what he continues to do for us and what he will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.